The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast, where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname this week. Not this I, week. I, I try to give myself a cute Star Wars name, but I'm, I don't feel like it this well, week. This week, given uh, the film we're doing, we'll just call you, like, number 12. I'll be, I'll, you know, I have to give myself an android name. Or, ah. or excuse me, not, they're just droids. Yeah. Not androids. Okay, so... So uh, I am... I am BX three four W W T three I bold. I'll just be WS seventy eight. It's my Done. initials in the year I was born. Done. Yeah, I'm WS seventy eight. I am an android. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode, I was achieved entirely through motion capture. Ooh. So um, it, I I uh, look my my movements are all the more realistic. Uh, making me as an effect was a big pain in the ass and actually probably uh, really unnecessary because a puppet would have been just as convincing. Well, it's no fun, though. Uh, it would be amazingly fun. Everyone loves puppets. Yeah, Puppets yeah. are the best. I don't know why you'd ever not use a puppet. The, that that mocap stuff seems like such a pain in the ass. Anyway, we're not talking about puppet movies this week on episode zero. No, we're, uh, we're on one of the CGI ones. Well, well, kind of. Well, Star Wars-wise, we are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this is the podcast where Whitney and I uh, we talk not so much about Star Wars itself as we do about the many films that led to the creation of Star Wars and all of the various other Star Wars movies that make up the whole franchise. Uh, Star Wars is, as we've said before, a pastiche of many different types of movies that came before it. And you can learn a lot about film history from starting at Star Wars and working its way backwards. And we spent most of our time focusing on the Star Wars films with George Lucas. Mm. Either the films that he directed himself or the films that he uh, had a very close hand in producing. Uh, however, not every Star Wars movie uh, is based on the movies that inspired George Lucas. Many of the other newer Star Wars movies, mostly the ones that came from Disney, um, take inspiration from different types of motion pictures, uh, different eras of motion mm-hmm. pictures. Uh, George Lucas you know, grew up in the 40s and 50s, and he was inspired by the types of cinema that he was exposed to at that mm-hmm. age and also in mm-hmm. film school. And the filmmakers who are making Star Wars now are younger than George Lucas and they were inspired by different eras of cinema. 
I feel like the, the Disney Star Wars, Disney is pretty good about unifying an aesthetic when it comes to their animated features. Mostly. A, a lot of the, the character designs are yeah. generally pretty similar. Yeah, every once in a, a while they do a big, uh, a big shift in one direction, but mm. they usually find a way to yeah, sort they, of make it all they, feel like part of a piece. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and I feel like with their uh, when they bought out Marvel and they started to put that big Avengers series into to motion, they at least had like one executive. Kevin Feige is typically the one who's credited for creating kind of the master aesthetic of all of those movies. And he's yeah. the one who's kind so of So that they all feel of a piece. Exactly. Yeah, no matter so, how different they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, of course, a big criticism a lot of critic, critics came up with. It's like, this one's like a time-traveled sorcery epic. This one takes place in space, and this one's a spy thriller. But they still feel kind of samey, you know, which is really a little odd. You know, you, you pick your battles, yeah. and do you want them to feel like they take place in the same universe or not? Yeah, and they, yeah, they decided they did, and I understand. there's a downside to yeah, that. Yeah, I understand that. Um I feel like with Star Wars, there isn't that one unifying factor. And when mm. you get to the Disney uh, Star Wars films in particular, it's a little bit more of a genre free-for-all. Yeah. Like, they're just... Not that they're necessarily handing them to, like, an important auteur. I feel like they did that with Ryan Johnson a little bit. Johnson that was feel, a little definitely bit feels more like an auteur, his, That was, like, yeah. a little bit more of his movie than it was, yeah. like, uh, the studio monster. All of these others, it's like, what can we throw in here that will be immediately recognizable? Like, they were thinking out their inspiration mm -hmm. rather than taking inspiration. Uh, you can correct me on that, yeah, but that's what I'm it feels like to too me. Hard on okay. that. And I think that's a lot of that is based on perception, and mm. I don't think it's the most unreasonable perception I've ever heard. But yeah, the uh, the Last Jedi I think stands out in a lot of ways because Ryan Johnson was given a cliffhanger, but he wasn't forced to, to stick to any notes, mm. um, and so he did what he wanted. And some people are very, very happy with that. Some people are not. I'm mostly happy with it. Um, you know, my my only criticism is that it's two movies in one. I, it's, it's, it should have been two movies. It's a little overstuffed. Yeah. I have a few minor quibbles here or there, but mostly what I love about The Last Jedi is the way that it does for the new trilogy what Empire Strikes Back did for the original, which is uh, take a lot of narrative chances mm. and do a lot of things that challenge what people expected from the first film. And yeah, I, a lot of people were taken aback by just how far it went. I think that's great. I think we mm. need, if we're going to have movie franchises, they need to do that once in a while. And I think The Last Jedi does it mostly very, very well. But in addition to that, we did have uh, some spinoff movies. Um, there was uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, which was intended to be the start of a new sort of prequel series starring Alden Ehrenreich. And, um, and they were going to be like these big slapstick Star Wars farces. I don't know about how far they actually wanted to go in that direction, but they originally got Lord and Miller, the folks who brought you the Lego movie in 21 and 22 Jump Street, um, to make it sort of lighter. And um, yeah, they got taken off the project halfway through like shooting, like didn't even mm. like finish shooting before it got taken away. Um, and uh, so they brought in Ron Howard, who, much like J.J. Abrams, I feel, is seen as a very capable filmmaker, occasionally capable of making a truly great film, but someone who knows how to play ball. He's, he's very populist. He, yeah. Well, he grew up out of the Roger Corman school. Yeah. And Roger Corman, uh, if, if there, there's anything uh, Roger Corman was, it was that he was very efficient. 
He had his eye on the bottom line. He understood that uh, this is a workmanlike process. Make the movie. Make it make money. Get out. Yeah. You're not necess- And if we make art, yeah. that's an accident, he, but it's a, a fortunate accident. Ron Howard was essentially an extremely talented work for hire when he came into yeah, Solo. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's fine. The movie has a lot of things I like about it. There's a lot of things I really dislike about it. Mm-hmm. But the one film that Disney put out that doesn't feel like any of the others, for one thing, it can't lead to a franchise because it has a real bummer of an ending. <laughs> um, and it also it's more dour It's uh, darker, I think, than any of the other films by design mm-hmm. We can argue about how effective it is But certainly by design It's intended to take a movie called Star Wars And make it about war Make it feel like a war movie Which was, uh, weirdly, a first for a whole series Like, what yeah. What film? It was like the, the 12th movie in the series And it was the mm-hmm. first one that felt like like actual gritty combat. Yeah, there was not gritty, movie combat, no, but a little bit more of a, like a grounded in the gritty, trenches, gritty combat, and, yeah. and a sort of a Saving Private Ryan aesthetic. Mm. A movie we we might also uh, include on this podcast at some point. But um, yeah, for a lot of the uh, war scenes, the actual not just like a couple of plucky rebels getting one over on the bad guys, but war that we saw in the previous Star Wars movies at that point had a very formal old Hollywood aesthetic. You look at the droids versus the Gungans and the Phantom Menace. It's two people meeting across from a plane and it has this sort of very proper Mm. British, we're all just going to stand in a line and shoot. And whoever has people left at the end won. It's like Barry Lyndon. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Attack of the Clones had a bit more battles. The first like half or so mm-hmm. of uh, Revenge of the Sith had more like space battles, but there was still a sort of a pluckiness to it—an old school World War II uh, damn busters kind of aesthetic that was like, yeah, okay. There was a bunch of like you know plane shooting and people dying at the end of the original Star Wars, but it's all going to be okay, right? Good yeah, guys are going to win and. Rogue One doesn't necessarily feel like that. Rogue One all, uh, feels like the good guys could lose. It, it was bright and positive, even when it when like there's a sandstorm or like yeah. the the visuals aren't so bright and clear. Yeah, uh, the camera did make sure to sort of like focus on stuff, which is to say it was really stagey. Which is to say it was easy to consume and good for kids. Yeah, even though the it's old like stuff, not the old, that, that is the old. Even going into the the prequel films. Yeah, uh, Rogue One. Totally opposite. They uh, were trying, I think they were trying to make Star Wars feel as important to uh, the adolescents and adults now as perhaps they took the violent, the not as gritty violence uh, that they saw as kids. Right. To take that as seriously as they, they took it when they well, were I kids. I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to remind people of consequences and stakes because Star Wars became a little safe. Over the years, a lot mm. of the when the prequels came around, we already knew what was going to happen to Anakin Skywalker. We might not know exactly how it was going to happen, mm. but we knew he was going to betray the Jedi and that all the Jedi were going to die. So even though the ending of Revenge of the Sith is actually completely fucked up, like he kills a whole bunch of children mm. and he kills his they, own uh, wife. Uh, 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 younglings. Whatever. They have to say younglings so they yeah, so they can get <laughs> away a, with a PG-13. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then like he ends up like covered in molten lava and having his limbs dissolved. Mm. It's actually really fucked up. But yeah, but we still knew it was going to happen, and so there was this sort of old-fashioned sort of Greek myth quality to it, where even though it's kind of fucked up, it felt kind of safe. Rogue One was telling a story that we'd never heard before, and a story that by definition had to have a tragic ending, mm. because Rogue One was the story of how. 
the Rebels acquired the Death Star plans that Leia has at the beginning of A New Hope and that end up in the hands of R2-D2 and Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. R2-D2 um, doesn't have hands. Oh, whatever. <laughs> the metaphoric hands of mm. R2-D2 is the, my new book about Star Wars. Um, and uh, so basically the original thing was, it was kind of a MacGuffin. It really didn't matter too much. It was basically, you could have had that ending, well, you know, gun, uh, like shootout in space sequence it, without those plans, but it drove the action and gave everyone a purpose, a need to go into action, a need to, it, a need to, to we need to get this to the princess, or bad things will happen. So, I, I think so it, it took a MacGuffin of, and made it the most important thing in the and, story. And I think it also served kind of uh, as a way to kind of cover up and justify what the people who had seen Star Wars many, many times had noticed. Uh, and started to perceive as a plot hole. It's not. Oh, no. It's There's a reason we never saw that or talked about it, because yeah, it was the, not important. The, the idea of uh, this gigantic, complicated machine the size of a moon, uh-huh. you know, all you need to do is fire a missile in a hole. Well, first of all, they established that, that that's really, really difficult to do. True. Uh, and so, of course, that it has this, like, quote, weakness is not really a weakness. I think that's just sort yeah. of a sneaky thing that... The good guys figured out how to do, and they had they lost a lot of people doing it, and it took you yeah. know, Luke Skywalker and his magical psychic powers sure. to do it correctly. So yeah, that's it's, cool. It's not a plot po- not a plot hole, but the idea that this big machine has such a f- like a single piece yeah. of fragility to it yeah, needed not, to be addressed all of a sudden. Well, it didn't, and but they chose it to. Yeah, well, that's they what I mean. It, in the minds yeah. of the filmmakers, they felt like they needed to address something that some fans had in the intervening years decided was a plot hole. Yeah, Family Guy made fun mm. of it. Yeah. A couple other things made fun of it. And I know uh, in... This is a detail I remember from uh, Return of the Jedi... Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were building the second Death Star, yeah, they they had the same weakness, but I think you could see in a diagram that they just made that tube that they would fire the missiles down into. They like kind of bent it. Well, like it, was, I, it wasn't a straight line anymore. It was they had to fly actually into the center of the Death Star, yeah. basically, and that's a complicated thing in and of itself. Mm. And I don't know why they chose one of the mm. biggest ships they had in order mm. to make that run, but whatever. But, but the, uh, in the, any case, the idea of Rogue One was yeah. a bunch of uh, scrappy. Some of them not rebels, some of them are, and the, re- the rebellion in this movie, as opposed to the other ones, weren't sort of like a a warm family of hardworking uh, soldiers. Mm-hmm. They were more like uh, sort of the da- French damaged, yeah, World damaged II, prisoners, yeah. and yeah, or yeah. Well, the, the actual resistance. Yeah, you know, they basically the idea is that being rebel is hard. It is dangerous, and it forces you to make some really, really terrible and difficult moral decisions all the time about what is important, what is expendable, whose life is expendable. Uh, and that's where we get Diego Luna's character, who I don't think the movie gave us time to explore him very well, but an interesting idea nonetheless. But in any case, the real gist of it is this. All of the characters in Rogue One are being introduced so that at the end of the movie, yeah, they'll succeed in the mission, but they'll die. Mm. And they'll die in a really horrible fashion, and you'll feel something, hopefully, when it happens. So we're introducing characters to send them on a mission so they will die. Because if they didn't die, we would have met them before. Had to happen. This kind of Men on a Mission movie uh, has a lot of uh, history, and in fact has history in actual war when people used Mm. to go on missions that they would call suicide missions because the risk factor was so high but someone had to do it so 
the higher-ups believed in order to gain a strategic advantage mm-hmm. over the enemy. And a lot of war movies have focused on these sort of unwinnable missions, these sort of mismatched uh, group of misfits, and this predates even the movie that we're talking about. I mean, you can look at something like The Guns of Navarone, which is also an influence on uh, uh, Rogue One. Uh, look at something like Hell is for Heroes, which is one of my favorite World War II movies. Amazing movie. Um, but the one that we settled on is a movie that I think, like Rogue One, was attempting to take the traditionally accepted aesthetic of what a war movie is, specifically a movie about one particular war, in that case, World War II and Star Wars. Well, Star, the Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. The wars don't have names in Star Wars. Well, I guess the, the Clone, Clone Wars. wars yeah. The Clone Wars. Um, I don't know what the other ones are called. There may be names for it. I don't mm. actually know that off the top of my head. They don't say it in, I'm sure there's like they, fan theory. They probably this, say it in no, the cartoons yeah. or whatever. And we, and the cartoons do focus more on the military conflict. Um, but uh, much like Rogue One, the movie that we're talking about today uh, came out after the initial wave of movies about the subject and tried to tell a story about an ill-fated mission full of interesting characters who are destined to die and also try to rowdy it up and make it violent Mm. and exciting and raise stakes and make it weird. And that's how we got a movie called The Dirty Dozen. Major Reisman. You are ordered by Allied Command to select 12 general prisoners, convicted by courts martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery, and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen is one of those movies I kept hearing about uh, that you'd watch if you wanted like grow chest hair faster. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's constantly it's, on the list of like the most macho yeah, movies it, it, ever it, made. Uh, you know, and and just listen to this cast. First of all, it's they're all led, led by Lee Marvin, who is one of the is, most yeah. macho. People don't talk about Lee Marvin enough these days. I think, but there was a time when Lee Marvin was like one of the great cinema tough guys. Yeah. So led by Lee Marvin, he's in, again, the plot, if you missed it in there, there I don't know what clip I used, we'll, we'll decide that later, but um, <laughs> the plot is, it's World War II, Lee Marvin is a tough guy, and he's put in charge of a mission where he's going to take 12 criminals, these people. Military criminals these, that these, committed hor- horrendous crimes of violence. Every single one of them either has essentially a life sentence or is sentenced to die, and he's going to train them to work together as a military unit to go on. Uh, what we would call suicide missions. Hmm. And as a result, he has a lot of people who have uh, issues with authority for the most part, particularly John Cassavetes, who... It's kind of, kind of apart from Lee Marvin, kind of the main character. Uh, John Cassavetes was the only person in the cast who was nominated for an Academy Award for this. He's great. Uh, yeah, just a really great breakout character. People liked him a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, he's got to find a way to do the mission. And yeah, the cast is... I mean, there's a few people who don't get recognized nowadays, but it's mostly stunning. So we got mm. Lee Marvin. Mm. We got John Cassavetes, who, of course, great actor, even better uh, a director. Um, let's see what we've got. We've got Jim Brown, NFL legend Jim Brown. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, there's uh, Trini Lopez, yeah. uh, who probably don't know. There was uh, Telly Savalas, who's kind of the maniac. Yeah, Telly uh, Savalas is the most like dangerously the, unhinged character that they mm, have. He's, yeah, he's like this religious zealot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Donald Sutherland. Yeah, uh, who, in a breakout role for mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland. People did not know who he was. 
And he was so memorable in this film that, that, that it got him his leading role in MASH, and that made his career. So that's cool. There was uh, famous cowboy actor Clint Walker was in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Bronson. <laughs> yeah, young, youngish Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson never looked young. I just, watched, no. I just watched him in a movie called House of Wax, where he plays like Vincent Price's uh, silent monster henchman. And honestly, like he doesn't look like Charles Bronson. Like you might not think it was Charles Bronson just because his hair is all different and he mm-hmm. didn't have his look down. But like he was probably younger in that movie than I've ever seen him. Uh, he did. He looked 50. He always <laughs> looked 50. And and uh, he's very, very good at playing the one character that he plays in every movie, mm-hmm. which is Charles Bronson. Yeah. Tough like, guy, a little yeah. more thoughtful than you think. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, he's very good in The Great Escape. Yeah. Uh, and in addition to the various people in The Dirty Dozen, we have a lot of people who play their superior officers, including uh, oh, Academy Ernest Award winners like George Kennedy. Ernest Borgnine. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we got... Uh, I love uh, George Kennedy so much. George Kennedy's great. Robert mm. Ryan is in this movie. Uh, mm. It's it's a big, big cast see, and, of uh, tough dude actors. Women, 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 women. Nope, no women in the movie. No, no there's, there's a there's few. Like, there's a but few women. Uh, they're like... They play sex workers. Sex workers, yeah. And they come in for one scene and it's awkward. They're... they're, the, they're what was called in, in the Nazi regime the Joy Division. Mm. Oh, actually, no, there is one other mm. uh, uh, female character, and she dies really terribly. Like, oh, it's, that's right. It's yeah. a really horrible, horrible scene. Um, but uh, uh, I, uh, yeah. Before I uh, we we did uh, I watched the movie and before we recorded I read Roger Ebert's review of it. And oh, yeah. Roger Ebert he gave it three stars. He said that everything up to the finale was actually really good stuff. Yeah. About kind of rehabilitating these horrible criminals mm. using their uh, propensity for violence and rebellion uh, to like aid in the mission, sort of fall in line, like yeah. make sure that matches a little bit more with uh, Lee Marvin's command style and essentially rehabilitating them. Yeah. It's a rehabilitation story. Yeah. Up until the point where they set everybody on fire. Yeah, the and final act of this movie is insanely violent. It's it's for so, the era in particular. It's so violent. In fact, a lot of critics at the time, as I have learned, uh, were really put off by it. Yeah, they thought it's a movie up until that point, and then it just becomes so horrendously shocking. And it's it's not that like it's, it it kind of undoes any of the positivity that you might have gotten from the first. And again, it's a movie from the 1960s, so it's not particularly gory. It's a Hollywood movie from the 1960s. You could do that in other places, but so it's not especially gory, especially by modern standards, but the body count is huge and it is vicious about it. People die really badly. Mm -hmm. Like, and the, the glee that the dirty doesn't take with their slaughtering is a little troubling even yeah. in World War Two, and uh, that's the kind of movie it is. Though it's a movie that is about the violence of World War Two yeah. and the type of uh, characters well, who were too vi- they were considered too violent for World War Two, and then they <laughs> said, "Okay, we're not doing great in World War Two. Bring in the violent guys." Well, and um, this uh, film was it was remade and had a lot of sequels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was remade. Uh, like the the same concept was reused a lot oh, yeah. uh, in in uh, the Inglorious Bastards and also in Glorious Bastards, uh, yeah. my boss's film. And I can't really comment on Inglorious Bastards other than to say it takes everything from this movie. It's very the, very this, clearly this, inspired. I, yeah. The idea of using movie violence as a 
a tool of cultural vengeance mm-hmm. against a uh, past world injustice mm-hmm. is uh, something my boss does a lot, but it's something that comes directly from the dirty dozen. Yeah. Cause it lets now, me... it's okay for the movie to be that violent because we are actually killing Nazis. Now we're, yeah, we're using unequivocally. Mo- we're using, uh, we're Hollywood. The war's over. We don't really have much in our stock in terms of actual cultural reparation. All we can really do is, Use the language of cinema to try to rewrite history in our favor, at least the way we wish it was in our minds. And we do that with Nazis a lot. Look at the mm. ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Nazis don't all just die on mass; they are melted by God. <laughs> like holy yeah. shit! And that was made by a Jewish filmmaker. Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the Dirty Dozen was made by uh, director Robert Aldrich. Oh and golly, Robert Aldrich! Robert Aldrich is a really interesting um, filmmaker, and people need to talk about him more because look, I, his I'm career just, is fascinating. I'm just going to read down some of his his uh yeah. filmography like starting in the mid 60s he did he kind of alternated yeah between these really macho violent movies and these really kind of campy female driven movies yeah so he did uh you know sodom and gomorrah but then he did whatever happened to baby jane then he did four for texas then he did hush hush sweet charlotte then he did flight of the phoenix you know he's yeah. he's just sort of ping-ponging back and forth and, and, and all of these movies yeah have this kind of operatic sense of drama to them. They do. And you can even go beyond that. He would end up making like what is considered one of the best football movies ever, The Longest Yard, Mm. which very much has a Dirty Dozen uh, kind of setup as well. Uh, And even before that, in the 1950s, uh, he made a movie I consider one of the best hard-boiled film noirs ever, Kiss Me Deadly. Kiss Me Deadly is really good. Which is just dripping with testosterone. (laughs) It's the most manly, like, film noir ever. And yet, it's also one of the most over-the-top. And the ending of Kiss Me Deadly is one of my favorite endings of any movie ever. Mm. And, uh, but then he's made all these films dripping with testosterone. But, you know, then there's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is this, you know, it's a a film venerated in the queer community. And he also made a queer film. He did The Killing of Sister George, if you ever saw that one. I never saw that Which is a straight-up lesbian drama with, like really explicit uh, turn off your I thought it's, it's Google oh, wants right. me to know something but yeah it had like explicit lesbian sex which was yeah. not seen on camera a lot at the time yeah uh, so he so was he's, pushing he's boundaries a, he's he was a really like, yeah. fascinating yeah. filmmaker who was interested in the extremes of testosterone and estrogen. And I think he was also interested in the extremes of cinema and what he could get away with at the time. Mm. And indeed, I think that makes him the perfect choice for the Dirty Dozen because, and this is something even Lee Marvin said, and Lee Marvin, like actually quite a few members of the cast, was actually in World War II. Mm. And Lee Marvin, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that the story is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. This is something happened. that I saw the Dirty Dozen when I was young. My dad was a, uh, a history buff. Uh, and he was very much uh, fascinated with World War II. He was constantly watching documentaries and movies about it. He was what you might call a, a rivet counter, where if anything was in, like all the technical details, if anything was inaccurate about a World War II movie, he could tell you like okay. that. That you know that that suit is being worn wrong. That tank wasn't like rolled out until one year after this movie is set. Like incredible eye, eye for detail. Mm. Dirty Dozen was not one of his favorite World War II movies, but I did see it a couple of times, and I liked it enough at the time. And then I saw it again a few years ago, like ten years ago, when it came out on Blu-ray and like a big fancy set, and um, and I liked it fine then too. 
as a sort of a, and again, rowdy is the word I use most for mm. Dirty Dozen. This just sort of um, almost Animal House aesthetic, where like, yeah, we're <laughs> we're filthy and we're ne'er do wells. How how often do we do well? Ne'er. And it's not my joke, but I love that joke. And, like a Muppets uh, and, joke. and they're constantly like trying to prove themselves against stuffy, like upper crust soldiers. Mm. And it all ends with like basically a parade where everyone dies. And it's, it is, it's Animal House, the movie, uh, Animal House, the World War II movie. But, uh, where was, where was I going with this? But uh, no. So like this time when I saw the movie, it was always dumb. It's, it's it's not it, smart. Well, it's not it's not realistic in any way. I can Even see. the premise is the something that mm-hmm. seriously there is literally no reason to get these soldiers mm-hmm. to do this mission. And in fact, getting these soldiers, even though the mission mostly kind of works, getting these soldiers was a massive hindrance. Especially Telly Savalas, whose character is a massive piece of shit and should have been drummed out of this thing. Mm. It should have been the Dirty Eleven from the end of Act <laughs> One. End of Act One, they should have said, "We can't work with this guy. He's yeah. a monster. He's a he's completely. He's not just a criminal. He is dangerously unhinged. Like, like we he's, cannot he's a, trust he's him actually at like, all. Like mentally ill, a danger and, uh, to himself and others. We have to get him out of here. And naturally, mm. he's the one who <laughs> ruins everything right, just right. being a piece of shit." Uh, uh, th- there's uh, there's a certain class of adolescent uh, that really gets off on violence, and I think and a lot of us go through that phase at least. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, you and I are both horror guys, and I was yeah. raised on slasher movies. Like, oh, somebody got their rib cage torn out. How fun! Yeah, uh, and. And that's, I, that can still be fun. I'm not saying and, completely and grown out of it. And but I think there's a tone you have to. Well, and, and I think there are certain filmmakers who uh, really enjoy the idea of violence in films because they feel like, it, no matter how it's wielded, it's still fun to watch. Mm. That violence is exhilarating. Uh, and I think some, uh, and this has been a conversation that's been had since the dawn of cinema. When you depict violence on camera what responsibility do you have as a filmmaker yeah. uh, in terms of how the audience is going to judge that violence? Is yeah. the violence always going to be fun? If it is always fun, what is that communicating to an audience, especially a young audience who might mm-hmm. be seeing it? That's what a lot of censors kind of fret about. Yep. Uh, or do you have a responsibility to fret a little bit yourself about the violence mm-hmm. and, and show consequences, com- communicate and that the violence trauma, isn't necessarily yeah. the best thing. Uh, the Dirty Dozen is of the former camp. They, oh, yeah. They, they Unabashed. Adore all of the violence. It is really irresponsible in its view towards yep. violence. And I can see how if you were a certain age and really into just watching people get their shit fucked up, yeah. then the Dirty Dozen is right up your alley. This is another way it connects to Rogue One. Because all of the Star Wars films are typically pretty kid friendly up up until Rogue One, I think. Uh, Revenge, Revenge of the Sith, Sith was PG thirteen because that one gets pretty dark. I'm, I don't remember if the Force Awakens was also PG thirteen. It might have uh, been. Might have been. Um, it might have. I'll, I'll look that one up. That's a good question. I'm getting, I'm getting, people die pretty horribly on screen in that. Yeah, one. no, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, Rogue One was definitely rated PG thirteen, and one of its selling points was this very similar pandering to a very adolescent view of violence. That is to say, it was PG 13. It was the force awakens. Was it PG-13. was PG 13. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Rogue one definitely was the idea of taking star Wars, something that had previously been pretty kid friendly mm-hmm. and throwing grit all over it. Yeah. 
was seen as something kind of edgy, but it's a very constructed kind of edginess. It's not something that grew organically out of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the story is so bad in Rogue One that all it really has is that grit. Yeah. That it's not, it's not, the, the problem isn't that it's gritty. The problem is the grittiness is all that it has. I actually, I actually, re- watching The Dirty Dozen and thinking mm. of it as one of the influences on Rogue One, and it's one of many films that has been name checked as mm. an influence on Rogue One. Saving Private Ryan is another one. Guns of Navarone is another one. But Dirty Dozen is probably like one of the top three mm. films that come up. And uh, Rogue One isn't, strictly speaking, a Dirty Dozen movie because. Dirty Dozen is about the very specific mission to get people who should not be together and make them make a unit team unit work. Um, that's been done in films like Suicide Squad. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Rogue One, not specifically that plot. But when you look at the structure of the Dirty Dozen and you look at the structure of Rogue One, you, I started to realize why Rogue One, although there's things I like about that movie, why it never completely connected with me. Mm. And why when all of these characters at the end of Rogue One sacrificed themselves for the greater good, I didn't feel as much as I figured I should. And I think the filmmakers wanted me to. And the reason is this. In The Dirty Dozen, a movie which is about two and a half hours long, Mm. they made the time for us to just get to know the characters all 12 all 13 of them all thir- and and a few extras on the side mm-hmm. just for the hell of it because the majority of the movie like the first two thirds is the first third is we meet the dirty dozen lee marvin like spends time with each of them talks to each oh. of them about what they've done we actually don't even meet the the dozen themselves until about 15 minutes into the movie yeah we yeah. introduce the premise because the premise is so ridiculous that they need to basically explain why we're... Basically, it boils down to this. Lee, they tell Lee Marvin, hey, we're going to put you in charge of 12 uh, uh, murderers. Mm. Uh, murderers, people who commit sexual assaults, uh, people who really have no business being in World War II. Um, and most of them are sentenced to either die or go to prison for the rest of their lives because they're too violent for World War II. Mm. And we're going to put you in charge of them and you're going to be a unit and you're all going to go off in the most dangerous missions we have and get yourselves killed. And Lee Marvin says, that's a stupid idea. And Ernest Borgnine's like, it is a stupid idea, but those are the orders and we're just going to do it. Mm. That's the, There's like three scenes dedicated to reminding us that this is a stupid idea, but some one of the higher-ups thought it was a good one, so we got to do it. Which is basically the movie saying... We like this premise. We're just going to do it. <laughs> right. And I love that. I love that they're not apologizing yeah, for it, and, but they are explaining, we know. Uh, so, not, But not only do they spend all that time introducing all the characters, they, mm. there's that really smart uh, ploy of just casting good actors. Well, that's also or, or that is recognizable actors mm. who can communicate a lot uh, just by their presence. You and, cast Charles Bronson. Yeah. Charles Bronson wasn't Charles Bronson yet, yeah. but he was. He was, <laughs> he was already in a couple of movies. And so you see him and you you get, you know him already. And the, to be fair, that's something Rogue One does as well. They actually have a really good cast of actors in Rogue One. I think we can all agree on that. You got, mm-hmm. well, maybe not everyone's equally amazing, but I'm, I'm, hold on. You got Diego Luna. You got Donnie Yen. You okay, got Riz Don- Ahmed. You got Alan Tudyk. Look, these are good actors. I'm not, going really to, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that they're not good actors, but... When when Riz Ahmed appears on screen, it's not the same thing as when Charles Bronson appears on screen. But Charles Bronson wasn't quite Charles Bronson yet, was That's he? That's true. So this is, you got to remember, Dirty Dozen, 
a lot of the actors were well known. That is mm-hmm. true. A lot of the actors were still making a name for themselves, and the dirty doesn't help do that. So we can. Uh, but, it's important to look back and remember where we were at in their careers. There, like first, Donald Sutherland but, yeah. was nobody at the time. There's also the problem of uh, we have Lee Marvin kind of bringing everything together in the dirty dozen. There's no Lee, Lee Marvin character in Rogue One. Yeah, there's no one bringing the team together, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my point. So like the beginning of the movie is we got to get this team together. Mm-hmm. So they get the team together, and Lee Marvin meets all the team members, and he talks to them about what they've done, finds out if they're remorseful or not. Some of them are, some of them are not. And then he goes through team-building exercises with them, and he puts them in situations where they actually have to team up in order to sort of fight for themselves. Like, there's a key moment where after all of these, like, characters who are told, if any of you try to escape, we'll kill you all, Mm. or send you all back to your life sentences. And so... Everyone is in it together, and there's a one bit where, like, John Carradine... Uh, not John Carradine. John Cassavetes. <laughs> John Cassavetes. <laughs> John Carradine. You can see why he did that. Carradine could have been in this movie. Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, but, like, there's a scene where John Cassavetes is about to escape, and Jim Brown and everyone else is like, the fuck are you doing? Get the, back in your, get the fuck back in your bunk. Mm. And there's a really cool sequence in, about in the middle of the movie where... Um, Lee Marvin has been preventing the Dirty Dozen from having basic amenities in order to sort of put them through hardship together so that they will bond. Mm-hmm. And at some point after, and they call the Dirty Dozen because they haven't been allowed to bathe. They haven't been allowed to sleep in beds. Yeah, uh, They have a bunk, but it has no windows, so it's very cold. And at one point, they just get sick and tired of shaving with cold water. <laughs> so they say, we want to shave with hot water. And... Lee Marvin puts gives some shit for it, but when all is said and done, he comes back to his to his like headquarters and says, "That's the first time they've used the word we. This is great, <laughs> right? You know, so like it's they're about a, they're a team now. It's about team building. It's about these characters spending time together and building a unit together. In Rogue One, they're not brought together on purpose. Mm-hmm. They're brought together largely through fate. There's a you know, like Diego Luna and uh, Alan Tudyk's K two S O droid character they're together they bring in felicity jones because she has a connection to all of this riz Ahmed is a, a empire i think pilot who mm-hmm. uh you know leaves although we that's all off screen so that whole plot point doesn't work um and then they they capture him and they, they like suck juices out of his brains and it has like no ill effects on him yeah and then they and uh and then they run into basically donnie yen and a whole bunch of other really cool mm. people and it's all very directional. There's no time to stop and let these characters interact and talk about things that matter to them. So so there's actually no character development whatsoever in them. Yeah, there? you might like certain characters because they're cool or they represent hmm. coolness. And certainly it's nice to have a Star Wars as diverse as this one, which um, that's fucking awesome and way overdue. But they don't have the time for character development. Even in the original Star Wars, there's downtime. They get to hang mm. out in a bar once in a while. They get to hang out and play chess and like practice being a Jedi for a minute at least so that we get a sense of who they are when the plot isn't determining their every action. And as a result, we feel like we get to know the characters better. Mm. In Rogue One, we have very, very little of that. And in Dirty Dozen, we have a ton of that. So yeah. at the end of the movie, when they all go on their mission and they almost all die, even though many of these characters are very bad people, at the very least they went, oh, that sucks. <laughs> oh, that's a bad way to go. Mm. Oh, damn it. Which is a hell of a lot more than I felt in Rogue One. You ever see us? You've seen Sleepless in Seattle, right? 
Yes, I have. Sleepless in Seattle is a rom-com that was huge in the early 90s. An enormous hit. And um, I don't think people talk about it anymore. And I think the reason people don't talk about it anymore is that Sleepless in Seattle is a film about an affair to remember. Hmm. An earlier romance movie from the 1950s, which was itself a remake, that people don't talk about anymore. (laughs) This is just a cheap knockoff of Sleepless in Seattle. Which was itself a remake of In Affair to Remember. Which, which wasn't, wasn't that, that good in movie the movie to start yeah. with. <laughs> That's from the critic. Um, but in any case, yeah, the movie Sleepless in Seattle. I bring this up for a reason if you've never seen it. If you have seen it, you probably know what I'm going with this. But the whole point is uh, uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are sort of destined to be together. And he, if they... She hears him on a radio call-in show. Yeah, just and, talking about how he's a widower and he loved his ex-wife and his son wants him to move on and meet someone else. And people start sending him these love letters. And Meg Ryan is... Every time we see Meg Ryan, she's doing something else that makes us know that she's perfect for Tom Hanks. And um, the kid likes her letter the best. So he answers her and says, I will meet you. Uh, oh no, Meg Ryan says, I will meet you at the top of the Empire State Building. And which is just like the movie In Affair to Remember. And they talk about how that movie is considered one of the great tearjerkers. Mm. Used to be one of my favorites. Well, doesn't really have an the, impact on me. The running gag of the movie is that whenever uh, a group of friends gets together to talk about it, they all end up crying together over well, the memories of the movie. Specifically, the women in mm. the movie, characters like uh, Meg Ryan, Rosie O'Donnell, uh, Rita Wilson, whenever they talk about In Affair to Remember, they start crying. And then Tom Hanks and all the dudes are just like, yeah, Affair to Remember's pretty good. I don't know. I just don't really cry about it. And then someone says, what about the Dirty Dust? And then, and then he parachuted that's, that's in, and, the, uh, and he died in a cheat. <laughs> uh, and Dirty Dozen is supposedly the film that makes men cry. It's not. No, I no, mean the, maybe, but like uh, perhaps, not, not, well, not the only the, film. Certainly, the, the Champ is the film that makes men cry. Uh, the Champ will the, make any human being cry. <laughs> the Champ is always that. Yeah. Uh, Dirty Dozen is just so unbelievably testicular yeah. that it it is not really going for those emotions. I think it's going for badassery overall. Yeah. Over everything. Uh, and I think it wants you to care when they die. It, it wants you to care, but not like feel like a pit in your gut when they mm. die. I think it just makes it, oh, I mean, man, well, sacrifices had to be made. You know, it's, it's meant to encourage macho behavior. Uh, there's a scene early on where somebody's climbing up a rope. Oh, I can't climb anymore. Lee Marvin says, no, you got to get up there. You're going to you're gonna drum you out. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. He picks up a Tommy gun and shoots at the guy. Well, it's not a Tommy gun. Or but yeah, he, he picks, picks up, up a machine gun and yeah. shoots the bottom of the rope. So he's just dangling there on a little thread. Yeah, and the guy's so scared he climbs yeah. up to the top of the rope. That's wildly irresponsible. Yeah. That's a terrible way this, to do this. This. Is, this is a film that is very positive on abusive motivation. Yep. Uh, violence as a, a way to solve all problems, not, yep. not just war, all pro- even like little yep. conflicts between people. Yep. It's, it takes a very dim view of diplomacy yep. uh, and actual military structure. It encourages yep. uh, anarchy and adolescent of, of worldview. Yep. It's a really irresponsible movie. In many ways. And mm-hmm. I think, no, obviously that's not what Rogue One is, but at the same time... But that it, reverence, it is, well, yeah. that reverence for war—that war was noble and good—vanishes mm. a little bit because we're seeing characters do things that are immoral or be morally conflicted about doing basically the right thing, mm. and that's something that we hadn't got of in Star Wars a lot. I mean, yeah, Han Solo is torn, but he always makes the right call, and here, yeah, it's more violent as a whole. It's more morally compromised as a whole. Mm. It's filmed in a less classy way. It's gorgeous. It's the, I think you said it's one of the best looking Star Wars movies, and you're right. 
uh, maybe the best. Mm. And um, but yeah, it's doing I think for Star Wars what films like The Dirty Dozen were doing for war movies in the late fifties and onward. We started to have this wave of films. Sometimes from younger filmmakers, but also sometimes from older filmmakers who I think got tired of the crap. Mm. Uh, that took a lot of the very sanitized Hollywood portrayals of certain eras and started to fuck them up. We started mm. seeing this a lot in Westerns. Uh, John Ford made a film called mm. The Searchers, which uh, mm. was not a cowboys are awesome kind of thing. It's still in many respects a racist film, but... At the very least, it wasn't, you know, a white hat cowboy going around. Everything I do is awesome and I can do no wrong. It was actually a morally conflicted movie. We started seeing the spaghetti westerns emerge in yeah. Italy where people who grew up watching those cowboy movies wanted to make movies about how the Old West was fucked yeah. up. I, uh, one of my film professors when I was going to film school liked to... He was very big on genre studies and he liked to trace yeah. the life of a genre and how yeah, it, would, like it, it would begin in sort of a, a proto version, of course, like it yeah. wasn't fully. Then usually it was like one or two films or maybe just like a two year period where everything would be codified. Yeah, there would be a couple and then, of hits yeah, and everyone copies that formula. Uh, then, yeah, then, then the copies came in and it became like a successful cliche ridden genre that, that produced mm -hmm. a lot of money. Uh, then the money started to fall out when it starts to wither. And they, my professor pointed out that the last era of a genre, uh, at least in terms of its relevancy, is when it becomes a deconstruction of itself. Yeah. So, you know, like you look at the early Westerns, there are all these sort of stories of heroism. You look at the golden age of Westerns, they're mm -hmm. much, uh, much broader. And then you go to something like The Searchers and everything's falling apart. I would actually argue that although certainly some genres do die that way, mm -hmm. I think some genres are powerful enough that they go through a post-ironic phase. Yeah, well, where they the, go uh, back to, it, I, I call it neo-sincerity. Well, I was going to college in the 90s, so yeah. we actually hadn't had like revivals in neo-sincerity just yet. Yeah, but like in the 90s is a perfectly mm. good time for it because it seemed like the horror genre, at least the slasher genre in particular, was dead. Mm. Scream brought back irony, and then after about 10, 15 years of irony, we started to get sincerity again, and mm. we started to get films like Paranormal Activity and well, uh, other well, films that were just sort of, yeah, there might have been a gimmick to well, it, but they I were irony, just... Irony died, uh, and, I yeah. mean, this, because of 9-11, a lot of irony well, just sort of withered up, and all, of, a big the, part of, it. all of the horror, we weren't interested in ironic horror movies, now we're just, like, grit, so we had stuff yeah. like Well, violence was real movies, now, and we didn't yeah. really want to be playful mm. about it, and I get it. But um, but in any case, and I think uh, Rogue One, it's interesting because in Star Wars, if you look at it in terms of like the length of Star Wars as that kind of mm -hmm. cycle, uh, Rogue One and the Disney movies are where they start to get kind of self-reflexive and they start to be movies about the other Star Wars movies. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, or, or in the case of Rogue One, a film that I think, even though the film, you know, it, it, the film was directed uh, by Gareth Edwards. Edwards, yeah, okay. Gareth There's another director named Gareth Evans. That's rude. <laughs> someone change your name. That's someone like, put a middle initial in there, please. Hmm. That's fucked up. At least Paul Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson had the the decency well, to start using their initials. Yeah, exactly. Paul W. S. Anderson. Boom. Thank you, Pauls. Hmm. Thank you, Pauls. The Garretts need to do this as well. But in any case, um, Gareth Edwards was brought in after doing films uh, like Godzilla, where the American Godzilla was a much more uh, military-focused 9-11 allegory in a lot of ways. And a lot of people have written really eloquently about how, what was good and bad about that. Mm -hmm. um, but he was brought in to sort of take this sort of serious approach to Star Wars. And, uh, and then uh, he made his movie. And then in a less publicized way than happened with uh, Solo... 
they uh, decided to let Tony Gilroy reshoot a ton of it. Yeah. In fact, uh, I remember people were really miffed that there were shots from uh, Gareth Edwards yeah. uh, version of it that uh, ended up in the previews that they cut mm-hmm. that they ended up cutting from the final film. The most iconic line from Rogue One didn't end up in Rogue One, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, someone said someone asked Felicity Jones why she's such a badass or mm-hmm. something. And she says, well, this is a rebellion. I rebel. And I'm like, you do, don't you? That's a cool character trait. You're too rebellious for the rebel. I like her. The line isn't in the movie. Weird. Well, also, also, make why, room for it. Also, wasn't why wasn't the I like her in the movie? Well, that's just me saying yeah, it. But well, I, that's me saying I like I, her. I know that's, that uh, that's a line that makes you want to see more of that character. Yeah, that character I, seems cool. I know there was a shot in the preview where uh, like some lights are turning on, and we see Felicity Jones kind of like wheeling around and looking at the camera. Yeah. Evidently, that was just like pickup. Oh yeah. That that was just shot. Uh, they were just had the cameras running that day before they were getting ready to shoot, and, mm-hmm. they had the, and so they're like getting everything ready. And they were just pushing in right at that moment. She was already in costume, yeah. so that was just her out of character. That sort of looking over her shoulder. Oh, that's pretty badass looking shot. We'll just put that in the preview. There's actually a, there's actually a scene like that in the original Star Wars where um, Mark Hamill. Mm-hmm. I think there was between shots, or they were just about to film. I didn't realize the camera and sound were rolling. He, it's the scene where they're like in their stormtrooper costumes and they're masquerading as stormtroopers to free Princess Leia. And Luke says to Han, "I can't see a thing in this helmet." <laughs> that's Mark Hamill. That's not Luke saying oh, that's that. Pretty funny. But they left it in because it felt really genuine yeah. and it was a good character beat. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time. The thing that pisses me off is when they specifically film something just for the trailer. Yeah, to sort of throw audiences off a little well, bit. Well, I understand throw audiences off. There's a good example of that. Uh, there's a movie that nobody talks about anymore, but it's really good called The Negotiator. F. Gary Gray directed it. Mm. It's it's pulpy, it's dumb, but it's fun. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson plays a hostage negotiator who gets framed for a crime he didn't commit. So he decides to take hostages, but because he's a hostage negotiator and a really good one, he knows all the tricks they're going to pull. Mm. So Kevin Spacey, back when he was considered cool, uh, Kevin Spacey comes in. He, as he was host- cool, cool for a long time. Yeah, there. he was. Uh, late 90s, he was, he was a huge movie star. Um, and he, him and Samuel L. Jackson in the same movie, everyone's like, holy shit. Um, but Kevin Spacey comes in as the hostage negotiator who has to unlearn everything he's ever learned in order to surprise Samuel L. Jackson. It's a fun setup for a B movie. Mm. The trailer included a shot at the end of the trailer, after setting up all of that story, where Kevin Spacey is on the phone and is it's shrouded in like red light. Mm. He's talking to like the cops on the phone and he says, Now you have to deal with both of us. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, and everyone was kind of mad because it seemed like they gave away the third act of the movie. That Not only is that line that in the movie, that plot point isn't in the movie. Mm. That's an amazing the, the, misdirect. I can't the, believe that he can get in more trouble for that. The, the worst uh, the worst example of that is, yeah. uh, do you remember the film Murder at 1600? With, I do. With Wesley Snipes and that. Diane Lane. It was and, one yeah, of was... two movies about murder in or around the White House that came out the same year. There was Murder mm-hmm. at 1600 with Wesley Snipes, and there was Absolute Power with Clint Eastwood. Right. Uh, in the preview for uh, no. Murder at 1600, they show you know the glory shot of the White House, and a helicopter lands in front, and and Wesley Snipes get out gets out, and he's you know because he's Wesley Snipes, he's all badass, and he's yeah, a cop, cool, and, he, yeah. and he pulls out his uh, his walkie-talkie, he's like. Got a murder at 1600. And he actually says this in the preview. The address that breaks all the rules. You just... You, 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 you said the tagline? You said the fucking tagline. That's the stupidest thing. 
the address that breaks. Shut so up! Oh my great. god! But the one I liked was uh, uh, there's the first remake of Black Christmas. There's the original classic mm. slasher movie Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. It's one of the best horror movies ever made. Boom! I'm not going to entertain a lot of debate about that. <laughs> there was a recent remake which I liked more than most, and I think time will at least say was more interesting than people gave it credit for. Whether or not people decide they like it a lot. Uh, there was another remake in the early to mid 2000s. 2006, I think. Yeah, uh, which is just a dumb slasher movie. Mm. Stuff I like about it. It's actually not a bad watch. It's just really stupid and sloppy. The trailer for Black Xmas, mm. as it was branded, features scenes that not only are they not in the movie, they were never in the movie. They were only shot to make the trailer look better. Yeah, no. that's where you go. Because the thing is, people don't always know this. Trailers are made before the movie is finished most of the time. Like, the movie is still in production or it's in post-production. We don't have a final edit. So you might make a trailer and then the movie undergoes some changes and sometimes, like, a different version of a shot ends up in the movie than the one used in the trailer. That happened with Lord of the Rings a couple of times in Memory Serves. It happens. Mm. Doing it on purpose, I think, is fucked up. <laughs> Doing it on purpose is just... Mm. I, Negotiator, at the very least, was kind of fun because it kept the ending a secret, but, man, fuck Xmas is fucked up. You can't do that. Yeah, That's well, wrong. I, I think it happened back, with Rogue One as well. I, I think they had a cut, they changed mm. a bunch of stuff, and then they moved on. Yeah, uh, to, I, I kind of lost the thread of where we were going with this, yeah, but uh, the, the, whole, the whole idea of putting grit onto Star Wars to make people take it more seriously was... Yeah. Which is something Dirty something Dozen was doing in World did, War yeah. II. It's yeah. like, we're going to take World War II and we're going to... And, and Dirty Dozen was actually... Uh, it's not a true story, but it was inspired by a real unit uh, called the Filthy 13. Uh, it was the 101st Airborne and they were demolition specialists and mm. apparently I mean they weren't like convicts or anything all of that shit was made up but they just didn't abide by the usual rules mm. and everyone Let's saw see. them as a bunch of re rebel rebellious assholes see, Ridiculous 6 Magnificent mm. 7 mm -hmm. uh, Hateful Ocean, 8, oh, Hateful eight uh, uh, Cutthroat's 9 yeah. has there been a 10 Ocean's 10 there was no Ocean's 10 yeah there was oh there's the Ocean's yeah. 8 you're right there's Ocean's 8 and then they yeah. went straight to 11 Force 10 from Navarone Okay, <laughs> that ocean's the sequel ocean's to eleven, uh, yeah. ocean's twelve, ocean's thirteen, ocean's. There's got to be a fourteen out there. What was the fake movie? Blake, Blake in the, seven. There's a fake movie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, isn't that the Fourteen Fists of McCluskey? Oh, something like that. Yeah. So I think that counts. Sure. <laughs> I'm gonna look uh, over how many fists of McCluskey there were. <laughs> Operaziono Dynamite. Um, <laughs> the Fourteen the, Fists of McCluskey. It counts. All right. <laughs> Socially safe high five. <laughs> Demolition man. Uh, the <laughs> when Rogue One came out, it, it filled me with rage uh, because of that self-reflexive uh, comment on Star Wars. Yeah, the way that you know when the and, and I've said this before when the Force Awakens came out, I understood why they decided to do something that was really retro, sort of a fan film. We're going to yeah. do something that feels a lot like Star Wars. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to repeat story kind of didn't feel yeah, like Star Wars. We're going to repeat people, story yeah. beats, we're going to repeat really similar types of characters and we're going to tell a really similar story. And when you're trying to reestablish that you can do that, that's I guess, you know, from a studio's perspective a wise thing to do. People were nervous that right. what if Disney doesn't have a Star Wars in them? I mean, yeah. they needed to prove that they did. And Force Awakens is a good movie. Did. I like Force Awakens. It's fine. It's yeah. it's light, it's fun to watch. I think it's kind of average. That's the worst thing you can say. I, about I think it's really better than average, but whatever. I can live uh, with that. 
So I was thinking, okay, now we have Rogue One. We're going to do something really different. We're going to change the tone a lot. Uh, What's the story? Well, it's about uh, something that actually relates really directly to Star Wars. Well, okay, I don't like that. You're actually not trying to think of like a big original story. Mm -hmm. You're kind of making a footnote to Star Wars. You're you're making something that fits in a little gap in Star Wars. But what do you got? And the whole film focused so heavily on nostalgia imagery and plot points already known and tried to get a lot of thrills from recognition that I started to hate the film pretty early on and it just got worse and worse and worse the more I watched it Mm -hmm. because I realized that Star Wars was now in this position where they're just going to circle the exact same point ad infinitum. They're not going to look in another direction. They're not going to try new ideas. The part that pissed me off is like there's a part where they're on Jeddah and Mm -hmm. um, there are two characters who show up I think in the foreground Mm. Uh, who will eventually go on to be in Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, and it's uh, Ponda Baba and Evazan, the guys who uh, sort of accost Luke Skywalker in the bar in Mos Eisley. Oh, you know, like, the, like, he doesn't like you. Oh, yeah, I don't guy. like you either. Like that guy. So those two guys, they're in the foreground. Oh, oh, uh, it's just a little thing. But yeah. even then, I thought to myself, hold on a fucking second. That scene takes place in like one day. Hmm. And this whole planet is basically about to blow up, so like, or might, at least become unlivable. Like you're so gonna that, like that character must have left that one planet, mm-hmm. ended up on the Star Wars planet. It's a little, it's a little, getting, it's getting extra contrived. Like yeah. you're already making it more contrived by connecting these dots because all of these things have to lead to well, Star Wars. And, and it was all about but you're making the, it extra contrived. It was all about the importance of the Death Star yeah. and how how it was like this. I understand it's a death machine that can blow up a planet, mm-hmm. but we saw it in action we saw it blow up yeah who cares how much foreboding there was beforehand i actually one of had my, plenty in star wars one of, one of my least favorite things about the movie uh, and is uh, that the last line is someone's asking princess leia what is this and she says hope mm. and i'm like a new hope wasn't supposed to mean the death star plans <laughs> a new hope was a new generation of rebels like it was supposed to be inspiring not like a plot point like i just feel like that that reframed the entire conversation in the original mm-hmm. the other thing i think is something that i think they get from dirty dozen at least indirectly is there's a scene in rogue one and i believe it was part of the reshoots where they've got the death star plans and they've got to get it onto captain antilles ship the tantive four they have to get it from... I, I know it! I'm going to brag, okay? I know some Star you're, you're Wars details. You're making up words, man. You're making gotta, up words. They got to get it onto the Tantive, and so they have to, like, hand it off because it's, like, on a floppy disk, basically. <laughs> and, uh, which is fine. I like retro technology and sci-fi. And um, so, like, they're, they're handing it off or whatever, and then all of a sudden, oh, shit, Darth Vader is here. Mm. And it, admittedly, it's intimidating because Darth Vader is here. There are no Jedi here. You're all fucked and indeed they are the movie revels in showing darth vader slaughter people Mm -hmm. revels in it and i think it works i think the way they intended it to work is two things one it's been a real long time since we saw darth vader as darth vader Mm -hmm. doing darth vader stuff like even like since return of the jedi Mm -hmm. if you don't got the cartoons but i don't even think they've really done it in the cartoons so it's a it's seeing Darth Vader not as a guy with a couple of lines of dialogue, but it's seeing Darth Vader be an intimidating villain again after a decade or so in which he was a you know a whiny fascist teenager. So I get it. But 
I don't like that scene because of sort of story reasons, because I feel like, A, you're showing Darth Vader being way more powerful than the actual original trilogy ever does. Mm. And I kind of thought, like, after the whole Revenge of the Sith thing, mm. that he was using the forces to keep his body together, which is why he's all stiff and Frankenstein-like. But whatever, I guess it's just inconsistent. But what pisses me off is that he sees them hand the Death Star plans over to the ship that he's going to uh, uh, like take over at the beginning of Star Wars Episode Four, mm-hmm. And then when he does that in Star Wars Episode Four, he says, oh, we have reason to believe that there are Death Star plans on this ship. And they're like, no, we're on a diplomatic mission. And I'm like, motherfucker, I just, <laughs> I just saw, saw you. <laughs> you were literally leaving a battle zone. Oh, they, Why does he even entertain their lie for a second? Their lie doesn't so, even make any sense. It's so it would be like if you were that... covered in blood and you said, I don't know what blood is. Like, no, of course you know what it is. You're covered in it. That's a stupid lie. Is that what like, that is? You're going to lie uh, to Darth Vader about that? It's <laughs> all it, the thing. It's so curious that uh, a, a film that was so devoted to slavish mm-hmm. uh, fan service would get something like that wrong. And I think it's something that if you watch them back to back, as I know some people do, it makes it not work for me. I know some mm. people overlook it, but for me, it doesn't work. But mm. the reason why I, I bring that scene up isn't just to relitigate why I don't like that scene, although I did have to talk about it. The reason is because I feel like that scene with Darth Vader exists to revel in violence. It exists to see people slaughtered. And that's what the ending of The Dirty Dozen is. And in particular, what I think about when I think about that scene is I think about what Telly Savalas does at the end of the film. Now, again, Telly Savalas Mm. is the person on The Dirty Dozen who... He's the dirtiest. He's the the most evil. He Mm. believes God is telling him to do horrible things to women, which he has already done. Mm. he's unreliable he's he's not mentally sound he needs to be getting help somewhere at best and when they break into and the mission is to break into the chateau and literally just kill everybody Mm. like that's it that's their whole mission just kill everyone um when he breaks into the chateau one of the first things he does is just walk in out of hiding, like on a balcony where anyone could see him, and it's a miracle that they didn't. <laughs> just go, heh. And then he, like, kidnaps a woman mm. and does really bad things to her and, like, invites her to scream just so that they can break their cover more. And when somehow that doesn't work, there's just murder involved. And then he ends up opening fire on the dirty dozen. Like, holy shit. Like, again, it's just there to show how evil Telly Savalas mm. is. And that scene with Darth Vader is just there but, to show how, how evil Darth Vader is. And the, the violence the is just is, there to be violence. It's there to be violence, although in the Dirty Dozen, it's to up the stakes. True. Uh, one of the Dirty Dozen, one of their own, has sort of turned on them. He's gone a little bit overboard. These people were not to be entirely trusted. We thought we had them all in, but turns out mm-hmm. Telly Savalas was never won over. And, yeah, so and there's he, an X yeah. factor now. Yeah, things so, can go really yeah, wrong. Yeah, and things can go really wrong, and indeed they do, but... Yeah. Uh, and so it doesn't turn out well. So like, yeah, this X factor kind of up the stakes, made things a lot more dangerous. First of all, uh, Darth Vader is killing all the good guys. True. He's like, well, that should, that should up the stakes. But all of those characters that he murders aren't, aren't named. They're not established as important. It's just a scene of him killing a bunch of people randomly. And it's supposed to make you cheer. Yeah. Like how much more how much more like tragic would it be if like one of the members of Rogue One 
All of them. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. But like, yeah. what if? What if? Let's just say. Uh huh. After all of that stuff, and a lot of them die to turn off shield generators and mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, and you know, two of them kiss just when like a nuclear bomb essentially hits the planet. Like that's the metaphor, anyway. Um, what if like one of them had escaped? Like Rizamed mm-hmm. actually is able to escape, and he gets up, you know, through the shields and everything, and he's the one member to survive. And then there's Darth Vader. And then, well, how much more impact would that have had if he had killed someone that we'd known? Well, how about how about they all get away and Darth Vader kills the entire cast? Mm, Too dark? No, I think you want to stagger it a bit at least. Okay. Because otherwise you want to like have people die so that they're uh, increasing yeah, yeah, stakes yeah. throughout the entire action like, scene. I, I know um, the, the robot gets destroyed at one point. Oh, that, and, was, and the those, one, that yeah. was the one that killed me because I like the robot best. Because it's like the comic relief character. Well, it's a little... we got, well, we got to know him a bit. He yeah. talked about his own personal grievances. The only, more yeah, the only character people. that had any kind of like real arc. Uh, well, Jin or so a bit, and I think Diego Luna a little bit. But mm. I feel like I feel like K two had a better quite. explored arc yeah, than most yeah. people. Um, so yeah, like the robot gets destroyed. Oh no, we got away. We we lost our robot. That that really sucks. But I'm glad we all have our lives. Oh no, Darth Vader, yeah. snappity snappity snappity, and you're all dead. Oh, that would have been that would have yeah. been the most. Horrible people would have been crying in the theater <laughs> if that had happened. It would have been great. Well, and and that establishes remi- him as a real threat, and you're not going to cheer at that moment. You're going to be really shocked at how evil he is again. I'm remind, and it would feel like it wasn't safe. Like yeah. I, there's, uh, if you've never seen the Twilight movies, <laughs> I had the most amazing experience watching. There was uh, when the last Twilight movie came out. I went to uh, an all-day Twilight movie marathon at the Arclight. So all five of them in a row. In a row. And then it ended... A stronger man than it most. It ended at midnight, and then at midnight, they showed the brand new one, Breaking Dawn Part 2. Mm. And I'm going to ruin the ending, by the way. So if you have any desire to you know, go into that pure, skip ahead. It ends with a confrontation between an army of superpowered good vampires and an army of superpowered bad vampires, and also there are werewolves in it. Yeah, and, and vampires, by the way, are like the X Men in this universe. Like, yeah, each one of them has their own specific mutant power. Yeah, like one of them can like control the weather and shit mm-hmm. and make like lava come up out of the ground. And I'm like, yeah, you stopped being vampires a long time ago. This is this is just superhero shit, mm-hmm. and I'm fine with that. Because they go through a weird evolution, those two movies. The second the last one is this terrifying body horror thing about a woman being eaten from inside by her vampire unborn baby. <laughs> it's like really fucked up. And then the, one of the first scenes of the second one is that same character who was like being literally eaten alive from the inside is now a vampire and leaps 50 feet into the air to catch it's, a puma. It's a puma. <laughs> catches a puma in mid-leap and starts eating it. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? But it ends in this big giant confrontation between an army of good vampires and werewolves and an army of bad vampires. In the books, they don't fight. They don't. There's a conversation, apparently, and then it's over. Bill Condon... Which, which is going to be dramatic on the yeah. page, I'm sure. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm told it works. Bill Condon, a, a mixed bag filmmaker, I think we can all agree, but yeah. has, has some good instincts sometimes. Realize that sucks as a movie finale. So instead, they're about to fight, and then instead of not fighting, the bad guys rip off one of the biggest hero's heads. 
And then there's a giant battle where people are fucking like falling into ravines and getting slaughtered and getting decapitated and burned alive and shit. And I'm here in this audience with all these, you know, twihards who are like super faithful to it and they're losing their minds. Oh my God, what is happening? And it was amazing. It was pure cinema in its most unfettered form. And in the end, it turns out it was actually all uh, a ruse. Mm -hmm. And one of the psychic vampires was showing them, here's what's going to happen if we don't talk this out. (laughs) And it's actually, it's a cute little little bit. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to have Mm -hmm. the big action sequence, but you also get to end your movie without a big action sequence. And that's kind of cool. I actually like that ending. Mm -hmm. What was funny though, is as I was leaving the theater, a lot of the people who were like, you know, just, absolutely just stunned at how completely off the rails it seemed the movie went. Mm. I heard a lot of people saying like, I don't know. I guess I think the new ending was better. Like <laughs> I think they should have just fought. <laughs> like it would have been way more exciting. Sometimes more intense is more satisfying. And I think that's something the dirty dozen gives us where, yeah. Okay. It's bad history. It's bad warfare. It's bad approach to the military morally responsible arguably uh, morally responsible certainly glorifies and fetishizes violence but there's something satisfying about it where i i I personally it's unapologetic about what it is it is just macho bullshit in a can (laughs) but that can is perfectly chilled well, it, it's <laughs> it goes well with chips. It's really, really, really good macho bullshit. Yeah, it's like the best Budweiser you've ever had. So not that good, <laughs> but it can satisfy on a summer day. Like that's the dirty dozen here. I think it, it's because it doesn't pull any punches, because it just goes for broke and doesn't even care about accuracy or whatever. It doesn't even care about fealty. It doesn't care about making you feel good. Mm-hmm. Even I think it mostly works. Rogue One, I don't think it had as pure intentions. No. I don't no, think no, it, if, it, it, if, if it had gone in with, we're going to fuck up Star Wars, well, I would have been like, interesting, let's do it. Let's fuck up Star Wars. But the, they didn't. They wanted to have also, half measures. Also, the Dirty Dozen is, it's, to, re, to use the word again, relitigating uh, not just war movies, but World War II itself. Mm-hmm. Let, let's win this time. Let's win in a movie. At and least think, it feels good to win in a movie. And I think it's a bit of a commentary as well on the attitudes towards Vietnam and so yeah, in Vietnam yeah. at the time in the late 60s. Uh, and Star Wars doesn't have that same kind of power because the Star Wars aren't World War II, are they? Because well, they, they're not they, real. They tried with Rogue One, but it's an imaginary war. Yeah. And what they're trying to relitigate is, well, you know, it's not just fun. There was actually some real consequences to this man. Uh, and and something I heard for common frequently about Rogue One, it's like, oh, it's so gritty. And I heard, I actually heard this phrase from people like huh. our big Star Wars fans. I can finally take Star Wars seriously. What were you doing before? Yeah, I was like, why did you, you care before? You weren't taking Star Wars seriously up to now. All, all of us like, were you like fr- frothing fandom that I've heard every single day, like from every single person I know, is not taking Star Wars seriously? Well, I think that we got to remember, though, that although we may have heard that, and I've heard mm. similar stuff as well, that's in by no means what everyone's takeaway is. And I know a lot of people who unabashedly love Rogue One. I, I rewatched uh, uh, Rogue One in preparation for this, and I was actually just kind of taken back by how choppy it is in terms of editing and pacing. 
Um, mm. I don't. Know, I don't think. I, I mostly don't think it works. I don't think it's a particularly good Star Wars movie. But I understand why people like it. It is different. Mm-hmm. It feels different. It looks different. It has a different kind of ending. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it. It's not an unwatchable film or anything. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to call it bad. But I don't think. It works because I think they're trying to do the Dirty Dozen, but they have to do it within a classic studio system mold. So they always have like one arm tied behind their back while they're making the movie. And it never quite accomplishes the grit that it's going for, but it is able to evoke the grit. Mm. And when you've had so many mostly sanitized Star Wars stories until then, well, it feels different. And I can appreciate glomming on to that and feeling mm-hmm. like it's a step in maybe, if not the right direction, at least an interesting direction. So I can get behind that, but I think, yeah, Dirty Dozen is just unapologetic, and Rogue One feels a little apologetic. Like, you feel it's, like they really gotta, they have to, they have to, like, we want to break all these rules, mm-hmm. but only the rules we're allowed to break because these characters, yeah, okay, we're gonna kill them all. Because... They have to die, or we would have met them later. So really, mm-hmm. we know they're going to die. We don't know the Dirty Dozen are going to die. In fact, they don't all die. And in fact, Rogue One undid a really funny joke you told me once about Star Wars mm-hmm. in, in a like an expanded universe comic book. Okay, there's there's a line of dialogue in Star Wars about how like many Bothans died to bring this to us. Oh, and they actually changed it. To... Well, that's that's nothing to do with Rogue One. That's later. That's in Return of the Jedi. Oh, it's in Return of the Jedi. In Return okay. of the Jedi, there's a great gag in a comic called Tag and Bank Our Dad, which in my dream would be a Star Wars movie I would direct. Um, but there's a great joke where uh, at the in Return of the Jedi, and I remember when Rogue One came out, I'm like, okay, so we're going to make a movie about the Bothans next? Mm. Uh, because, yeah, we didn't find out how like they got the Death Star plans in Return of the Jedi, and people died to get that to them, too. All we got was a line from Mon Mothma saying, many Bothans died to bring us this information. <laughs> And in Tag and Bink are dead, we met Manny. Manny Bothans. Yeah, a guy. Yeah. He died to <laughs> bring this to us. Yeah. Just one dude. It's a hilarious joke, actually. It's really Because really... That's, that's, that, that means a lot. That, one guy is your friend, right? It just makes me laugh. Oh, and then it turns out she had like a framed photo of Manny on like her desk. <laughs> so like, Mon Mothma had a really close connection to Manny. Really wonderful. You can play with that. I have no objection to playing with like you know what happens in between Star Wars movies. I actually uh, I never really sat down and watched Star Wars Rebels until recently, and that's a good one. Right. I'm actually really enjoying that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. I think Rogue One is just trying to have its cake and eat it too, and uh, as a result, nobody gets cake. And uh, anyway, but yeah, Dirty <laughs> does it I, 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 real fast because we haven't really talked. You talked a bit about how it's violent and how it's kind of irresponsible, and you and I both like movies that can be described both of those ways. Oh, yeah. I, this I, was your first time seeing The Dirty Dozen. Was. What did you did you like it at all? What did you I think? I actually did. I enjoyed it, um, and I didn't expect to. Uh, the, yeah. These kind of uh, violent war pictures aren't typically my bag, but I feel like the cast was so good, especially the the interplay between uh, John Cassavetes and Lee Marvin. Yeah, they I clearly think, knew that that was like the highlight of the yeah, movie. Yeah, those like the, the whenever those two were interacting, you really kind of got to know those characters really well. Yeah. I did like for a large portion of it, it is about rehabilitation. Yeah, it's about how these really violent people who are sentenced to die. Yeah learn to do something good with their lives yeah of course it turns out the good thing they're doing with their lives is setting nazis on fire uh yeah. you know with glee uh, yeah with ha- weird glee happily setting human beings on fire luckily yeah. they're nazis so they can get yeah. away with that yeah 
uh, you know, if, in, I've, there's a parallel universe version of this where like those are like kids going to assassin school and they're just setting people on fire or gangsters yeah. maybe. Yeah, basically, uh, basically, I'm pretty sure I don't I don't have all the information in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that at least some of the things that Dirty doesn't do at the end of the movie are technically war crimes. Absolutely, they are. I'm pretty sure that, like, when they got okay, we've locked them all in a bunker, and now we're gonna drop grenades down, but not before we pour a bunch gasoline, of gasoline on down them. them yeah. Like, dudes, <laughs> holy shit, mm. man! You did not need to go that hard. Holy cow! Wow. At least when my boss did it, he was paying homage to uh, we projectionists who work for him. Oh, that's appreciated. Like, uh, who, who killed Hitler? A projectionist. <laughs> what weapon did they use? Film itself. I like that. I know yeah. you're not allowed to talk about that movie positive uh, or negative. I like Inglorious Bastards a lot. Mm. I actually even like the original Inglorious Bastards, the movie mm. that uh, Tarantino got the mm. title from, which and is spelled correctly in that version. Enzo Cavallari. Castellari. Castellari. Enzo, uh, I think, G. Castellari. Made mm. a lot of great spaghetti westerns and pulp. Uh, uh, what are they? What are they called? It's like macaroni war movies. There's like a name for the war movie version of the spaghetti western. Um, <laughs> macaroni. I, I'm actually serious. I think that might be it, but I don't. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but uh, yeah, he made a lot of fun movies, and the original Glorious Bastards is fun. Like it's a it's an unapologetic Dirty Dozen knockoff where they the bunch of criminals. They're they work. They're they're American soldiers. They're they're in World War Two, and they're I'm trying to remember exactly what happens, but basically they manage to all escape behind enemy lines and they decide, well, let's fuck some shit up. Mm. <laughs> if it's fun for us, cool. If it helps the war effort, cool. <laughs> it's a little irresponsible, but it's mm. a fun flick. Um, I haven't actually seen it. There's actually a bunch of sequels to The Dirty Dozen and none of them went to theaters. There's like three or four made-for-TV movies, some of whom star members of the original cast. I think Borgnine comes back for one of them. Mm. Telly Savalas comes back for one of them as a different character. Well, he would have to. Yeah. Like, not like a twin, either. They just... We could get Telly Savalas mm. back. Um, I don't know, make him a general or whatever. Um, so I've never seen those. If anyone has seen those and uh, wants to tell yeah, us how they, they are, I'd be very curious. I, one of these days, I'm going to make the time out of curiosity, but it's never right. come up. 1985, uh, Dirty Dozen, the, ne the Dirty Dozen, colon, Next Mission. Yep. Uh, followed by 1987, The Dirty Dozen, colon, The Deadly Mission. As opposed to the others? Yeah. It was a really deadly well, and, mission and, the and first time. And dig this, 1988, The Dirty Dozen, The Fatal Mission. Again, the same thing. What was maybe the one? Maybe the second one wasn't that bad. Maybe the second yeah, one was mission, like delivering mail or whatever. It was deadly, but not too deadly. But the next one was <laughs> fatal. Anyway, next time on episode zero, um, we're we're actually going back to to serial land. We might remember we started this. By the way, I love that this was our twelfth episode of episode zero. The dirty dozen. dozen. Was I forgot the to mention episode. that at the top. Um, but yeah, we're actually going back to Serial Land. We began this podcast by looking at the Flash Gordon serials. Mm. And now we're going to go talk about a serial, a series of sci-fi serialized cinematic storytelling that was from the early 50s. And we're going to look, talk a little bit about how that sort of changed. And uh, we're going to talk about how we got the character, who a lot of people love from The Clone Wars, uh, Commander Cody, from a character named Commando Cody... Commando Cody starred in a series of shorts called Radar Men from the Moon. This is also a big influence on the movie, or actually the comic book that the movie was based on, The Rocketeer. 
Uh, yeah, the the look of Commando Cody with the the sort of rocketeer looking helmet and the mm-hmm. rocket packs, yeah, uh, is one of those things that's you've definitely seen because it kind of floats around, yeah, uh, like mo- collages of uh, pop culture kitsch ephemera. Yeah, it's iconic. Yeah, um, even even though people don't actually always mm-hmm. watch the original, so we're gonna watch There's the original. A, uh, in fact, you saw Lords of Salem, right? I did. There's a the main character in that movie, she has a, a Commando Cody painting on in her bathroom. I have no memory of that. But it's, awesome. it's like a Warhol version, so it's like yeah. the same image in different colors. And then at one point when she's having a nightmare, Commando Cody starts to bleed from his face. Oh, I think I do remember yeah. that now. God, that's a good movie. The Lords of Salem is definitely underrated. The Lords of Salem is definitely... Mm. Is that Rob Zombie's best movie? I think it is. Well, I, I, I still think The Devil's Rejects is his best movie, but The Lords of Salem is definitely up there. I would it's say a, they're top two it's a, or three. And it's, that's a great, the, yeah. it's a great feminist film. Like, yeah. Satan is an instrument of feminine vengeance. I yeah. think it's really wonderful. No, it's really underrated, yeah. I think. You should definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. But uh, that's... Uh, that's neither here nor there. One of these days we're going to talk about the horror influences in Star Wars. In fact, maybe we'll try to do that after next week. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right now we're going to be going to Radar Men on the... From the Moon? From the Moon. But yeah. I almost said On the Moon. Radar Men from the Moon. Uh, this is pretty widely available. I think it's all on Amazon Prime for free. Uh, you can probably find it anywhere else. So if you mm-hmm. want to uh, follow along, I think the complete serial is a little under three hours. So we're going to be talking about that next week on Episode Zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Um... Everyone who uh, has said they like the show, it means a lot to us. Uh, you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this podcast, or anything else for that matter. We got subject matter. We had an interesting episode this week. We had um, we talked about the Czech New Wave, and we talked about <laughs> video game movie logic, and mm-hmm. a lot of wide-spanning topics, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash network, where we have podcasts dedicated to Firefly, uh, we're doing every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, we're doing every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we've got a whole uh, podcast dedicated to movies that should be on Disney Plus but mysteriously are not. Uh, got a ton of free content, not free. You got a ton of exclusive content on the Patreon page. Uh, that you can uh, access there, but and we also have a ton of free content as well for the people who uh, are. You know, if you're a little trim, yeah. that's fine. We got st- we got you covered as well. So if you're only here for Star Wars, we do have a ton of other stuff here. We have the critically acclaimed uh, podcast. Where we review new movies. We have we've got mail where we read those letters that we just talked about. Uh, we have canceled too soon where we review TV series that lasted only one season or less, and uh, we actually have a few surprises uh, on the way. We have a new podcast idea. Uh, that we're going to do maybe monthly. We'll see how we can swing it, but it's fun. <laughs> um, and uh, we just dropped an episode of a show called You're Critically Acclaimed, uh, which is our top tier patrons at our Patreon page uh, are able to sponsor an episode of their choosing, about a topic of their choosing. Whitney and I have to do it. We can have a conversation about it if there's any problems involved, but Whitney and I have to do it, and uh, depending on how the patron wants it, the episodes might be exclusively for them and never released in any format, or they could be released right here on the channel, or they get released to all of our patrons. Um, and uh, we just did one that was released to everybody that's all about why Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, may or may not be the best werewolf movie. Okay, one of the best werewolf movies. One, yeah, that, that's a slight exaggeration, but um, in any case, at least the fifth best. And we, yeah, we had an interesting conversation about that movie, not just as an interesting piece of animation, but also as a horror comedy, which nobody talks about. So, 
Um, yeah, that's that's all a thing. And of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, may the Force be with you. And you. And you. <laughs> <laughs>